Hello, everyone, and welcome to Penciled In, a sports business series focused on the past, present, and future of the industry. Here, we're looking to have informed conversations with front office executives, industry professionals, and athlete entrepreneurs diving to the ever-evolving business of sports. I'm your host, Jacob Pencel, and I'm here with special guest, Janet Smith, an absolute trailblazer in the area of stadium design and development, and the current Senior Vice President of Planning and Development for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Thank you so much for joining me today, Janet. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. And I did want to wish you and the organization the best of luck. I know you're kicking off a nice playoff run today. I'm not a fan of the Brewers being from Chicago myself, so hoping maybe the Cubs and Dodgers can meet down the line here. <laughs> Something to look forward to, wouldn't it? So you have a plethora of experience in the industry in terms of planning and development. Um, currently you're with the Dodgers. Before this, you spent some time with the Baltimore Orioles and actually two stints with them. You've spent time with the Red Sox and um, the Atlanta Braves as well. So I just want to talk a bit about all of those experiences and how the industry has changed over time. So I'm going to start here just diving into the Baltimore Orioles, where you spent some time kind of working on their Cames and Yards projects and actually putting that together from the onset. It's one of the best known um, parks in Major League Baseball, and many credit it for kicking off kind of the construction of new era stadiums, where they're standalone um, solely for baseball and not multi-purpose like you may see with the, um, with the Oakland A's stadium, although I think they may have moved into a new one. But prior to constructing that ballpark, um, that ballpark being built, the, the predominant design trend was multi-purpose stadiums. So I'm just curious, um, in Baltimore, what led you to really putting together a stadium where you wanted to make it one with the community and really integrate it with its surroundings? I often think of Camden Yards as being just an alignment of the stars in the best of ways because uh, the president and CEO of the Orioles, Larry Lucchino, really wanted an old-fashioned ballpark. He had grown up going to Forbes Field in Pittsburgh and, of course, Wrigley, Fenway, then Tiger Stadium and Comiskey were still around. He marveled at the fact that the two smallest parks in the major leagues, Fenway and Wrigley, consistently had the highest attendance, even though there were much bigger venues. Because as you noted, uh, during the 1980s, most teams played in a multi-purpose venue, so some 60,000 average uh, seats in the house. And then there were little, you know, Wrigley and Fenway with some 30,000. And uh, it just demonstrated to him that there was something about the intimacy of the venue, uh, the configuration of the playing field, the proximity of fans to the game that made a difference in, in fans' willingness and interest in going to the game. So then you pair that with what the political leadership was in Maryland and our governor, William Donald Schaefer, had been the former mayor and had uh, Baltimore and had um, just a city passion that wouldn't stop. And he had overseen the redevelopment of the Inner Harbor as it more from an industrial harbor to an entertainment uh, based city with the aquarium, the science center. Uh, and this idea of putting baseball downtown was just to him another way to bring millions of people into the middle of downtown Baltimore. Well, those two ideas combined really reinforced each other. 
And Camden Yards now is in its 28th year and uh, we look back on it and there are many things about that project that uh, really were, were trend setting. You can't go into something and say, I'm gonna set a new trend, but you can look back um, almost 30 years and say, well, it started a new trend. And I think the aspect of it that's most powerful and resonates the loudest through America is the fact that it is in a downtown, it is in an urban center. It's very interesting and definitely one of the most iconic parks in baseball. So when you're talking about an urban center and building a stadium within that, there's obviously many more restrictions in terms of fitting it into that area as if then if you're plopping down a stadium on a massive um, parking lot or a piece of land in the suburbs, which was a bigger tactic back in the day. And now you're seeing kind of a shift to putting stadiums in the center of entertainment districts where all the life is downtown. So I'm just curious, what is, how is the thought process a little different when you need to really fit that stadium in and be efficient with all spaces within the stadium, building in an urban center versus out in the suburbs or just kind of starting from scratch on a large plot of land? Yeah. Well, I think every situation is a bit different. Um, and yet in our case in Baltimore, the constraints I think led to design solutions that were more interesting as a result of them. Uh, the B&O warehouse is the most obvious example of a constraint. We had a huge internal debate about whether the stadium uh, should be built next to the warehouse or should the warehouse come down and have more room. And there were many who advocated not only having a larger site, but also uh, having what felt like perhaps a better visual connection to the inner harbor. And yet the warehouse itself did two things for us. It allowed the ballpark structure to be smaller because we were able to put everything from the offices to the ushers changing rooms, the central kitchen, the uh, ticketing uh, in an existing building. So the ballpark itself was smaller. And then it also gave um, rise to Utah Street, the pedestrian way that passes through the ballpark that on a day like today, you can just go down and stroll down Utah Street just as you can across Baltimore's Inner Harbor uh, and enjoy it as a public civic space. And on game days, the Orioles put turnstiles at either end of the street and it becomes part of the concourse. And that idea, of having uh, this street that was part of an inside the park experience was new to baseball, but one that we've seen repeated in many different forms since. So for us, the context, I think, gave a lot of clues to an outcome that HOK Sport as our architect and RTKL as our urban planner really found compelling and really found um, made it more magical as a result of those constraints. It's really great to see those outdoor spaces surrounding the stadiums become one with the stadium, like you mentioned with Utah Street. I think it kind of does mesh that public and within the stadium partnership so that even if you're not always going to be um, able to afford tickets or be there on game day, you can really enjoy the surroundings of the stadium on an off day and kind of feel like you're a part of the vibe 
what makes baseball so special during the summer um, in comparison to other sports, which obviously are great, but baseball does have that kind of added value to it where just being around the ballpark is, is a really special feeling. Yeah. So it seems like something that your group's that I'm done. Working on, one of the projects I'm working on now is uh, the construction of Polar Park in Worcester, Massachusetts for the Red Sox AAA franchise, the Paw Sox about to be renamed the Woo Sox. And it sits in the heart of the Canal District in downtown Worcester and two of its four streets are actually going to be open non-game time as a part of the public environment. And I think it's just so exciting to see that kind of energy. And I think when you have a, a building like a ballpark, which occupies such a huge footprint relative to traditional uh, downtown buildings that it's incumbent upon us in baseball as the user to make certain that we have as much engagement of the public as possible so that it doesn't feel dark when there's not a game going on. I certainly agree. And I, I do think, like you mentioned, one of the best things about lower levels of baseball is how these teams are very supported by the public. And, and they're in such smaller communities where they might they may not have a major professional team so they really do become kind of the rep representing team on the national map of those smaller communities and i've been to some wisconsin woodchucks games myself um in wausau and they really are an extremely fun time and the access to the players is a lot better than you would yes. get at a professional game and it really is a fantastic family outing so to know that the organization is there for the community and there is that partnership really is what makes yeah. those um, games so fantastic in my opinion. Yeah. So I thought one thing you mentioned that's extremely interesting and something you see taken in, um, taken in stride with stadiums more now than ever is kind of the carbon footprint that they give. I know recently the um, Amazon bought the naming rights to an arena in Seattle where they said they would have no carbon pledge after like 2035 or something like that. And that's for the new Seattle NHL team, the Kraken. And I thought that was extremely interesting. But when you're talking about building a stadium and then having that stadium being used for a long time, you did that when converting the Olympic Stadium in Atlanta into a baseball stadium. So you weren't going to let a major Olympic stadium lay bare like many have done across the world, oftentimes causing issues. So... I would love it if you could talk a little bit about that process of turning the Centennial Olympic Stadium from 85,000 people into now at one point, although it closed what was a manageable and very nice baseball stadium for the Atlanta Braves. Well, Stan Kasten, who is president and CEO of the Atlanta Braves when I worked on that project, said from the get-go uh, that he would be happy for the Braves to play in a refurbished Olympic Stadium, but only if it was designed for baseball first and then converted to the Olympics while it was still on the drawing board. So that it would be easy to shrink it back to 48,000 for baseball. So the, the seats that made up the delta between that 48,000 for baseball and the 80 that was the goal for the 1996 Olympics were on temporary structures. They were temporary restrooms, temporary uh, concessions and the 40, the part that was going to house the 48,000 for the permanent structure were built very differently. 
And it's sort of an interesting evolution of a building because it served as home to Major League Baseball for 20 years before the Braves moved out to Gwinnett County. And now it's home to college football. So it was able to morph again. And I, I'm really pleased with its third chapter in life because I think as a society, we treat things as so disposable and it's such a shame to see buildings that structurally can live on for decades be rendered uh, economically not viable because the user changes their goals and their aspirations for uh, what they want to do there. So I give the city of Atlanta a lot of credit for finding a third way of using that building. So many of these major cities already have many stadiums. So it's been great to see them repurpose that for multiple uses. And now you have people enjoying that over such a long period of time. It really is efficient. And I actually wonder oftentimes why um, in, in Olympic cities, they don't build stadiums more knowing what their use is going to be after. Because once in a while, you'll see pictures spring up from Beijing or Rio. And it really is sad to see these sites where you know, they were putting in hundreds and hundreds of million dollars. And nowadays, there's just kind of vines um, rotting through them. And, and yeah. they're not putting forward to any good use when someone hypothetically could use that. I think that's one of the things that the city of Los Angeles has made such an important um, foundation of their 2028 Olympics is that there will be the ability to use venues that are already there, that nothing will be have to be built new. And I assume that like the 1984 Olympics, that much of what will tie it together will be a graphic identity and a sense of, uh, of, of communal spirit uh, that's portrayed in how the entrances and ticketing and uh, pageantry is set up around that, which is great to see a community pull those together as you describe. So like you said, really being authentic to a community is something that in my opinion, differentiates sports stadiums, but specifically MLB stadiums. Like when you're talking about Wrigley Field, you have the Vines in the outfield. When you talk about Fenway, you have the Green Monster. And I do want to just shift back real quick to the Oriole Park at Camden Yards and the warehouse that you have out in right field, the B&O Warehouse. And I'm just a little curious, what is the background of that? And what was the thought process in keeping that alive? And then also, has a player ever bombed it that far? Because I always wonder is if it's even possible. Like, can Mike Trout do it? I'm not sure. Do you know if anyone has? <laughs> he hasn't. I do know. Uh, King Griffey Jr. is the only player who's ever hit the warehouse, and it was yeah. in the 1993 All-Star Game. And it's funny you asked that question because we really thought, based on the wind studies that we did for that area, that it would be hit more than that once Oh, holy cow. That's four and a half. That may have hit the warehouse and they announce it did. That may have damaged the warehouse. Ken, you said you couldn't hit the, the warehouse, but you did. You got all of that one, eh? Uh, yeah, wind ball. <laughs> 28 years that baseball has been played there. In fact, the windows from the third floor down are a bulletproof.
shatterproof glass wow. because there was just certainty that it was going to be, you know, like a, a ping pong table or something. <laughs> uh, but that hasn't been the case. And uh, Frank Robinson, who was our manager at the Orioles when we worked on that, and of course had played in many of the uh, the, the old fashioned parks, including uh, including Crossley Field in Cincinnati, which was his baseball home for many years, was a real advocate of this kind of idea uh, that Larry Lucchino had of doing this old fashioned ballpark with modern amenities. And Frank cared uh, passionately about the outfield dimensions and making certain that it played fair, that it was intimate but that it wasn't a band box, that it was fair to pitchers as well as hitters. And so he spent a lot of time uh, with HOK Sport and our team looking at the height of the outfield walls, the relationship uh, of the, the playing field to Utah Street. And we wanted Utah Street, the street between the ballpark and the warehouse to be special enough that a home run out there would be this wow thing, but it wouldn't happen so often that it would be an everyday thing. And I think it's kind of nice looking back over the years that Camden Yards has been open that we can say, well, it, it does happen 15 to 20 times a year. It is a, it is a wow, uh, but it's enough that it's fun to go out and uh, look at the baseballs on this, where, where the markers are on Utah Street and see the history of who's played there, where whoever hit the home run has their name and the distance and the date. That's awesome. And the, the mesh in baseball between, like you said, history and then kind of the modern vibe on that street is something that makes the game so special. And I know one stadium you worked on that was definitely a challenge in, in bringing those two concepts together is Fenway Park. I mean, the stadium is over 100 years old, and it, it's managed to stay alive and be in phenomenal form these days. So could you just talk to me a little bit about when you went to the Red Sox what you were brought in to do and sure. how you were able to balance having so much history with the team. Yeah, and then sure. Being well, in many ways, it was um, very much a continuation of the kind of thinking that we did at Camden Yards. And um, just to sort of complete an answer to a question you asked me a moment ago about the BNO warehouse, much of the reason that we wanted to say that was that we felt that what made a park like Fenway special was the authenticity of these irregular asymmetrical field dimensions and irregular asymmetrical grandstand that surrounded it. And had the warehouse in, in Baltimore been torn down, we might have been tempted to do something symmetrical because we could have. With the warehouse there, we were forced to do something asymmetrical with a shorter distance down the right field line, a longer distance down the left, the grandstand wrapping around the left field foul pole. And it gave an authenticity to Camden Yards that we had grown to love at Fenway. So I often have thought that in many ways, Camden Yards looking at Fenway was like art imitating life. And then when Larry Lucchino ended up moving from Baltimore to Boston via San Diego, which is another great park we can talk about. Um, Larry wanted to take some of the lessons that we had learned in Baltimore. So it ended up being like our life imitating art, you know, the inverse. Yeah. And in fact, one of the first things that we did in Boston was to say, okay, we love this ballpark. There'll never be another one like it. 
you can't go build a new Fenway with a new green monster and have it be the same. So how can we renovate this building, but expand its footprint and its behavior so that fans do feel like it's got enough modern amenities and enough space to behave like a new ballpark without losing the charm of its 1912 existence. So we went to the community around us and we asked for permission to put turnstiles on Jersey Street, then known as Yawkey Way. It was a street that was already closed to traffic and was just this great burst of energy. But people would stand out on the street and wait until they heard the strands of the national anthem to sort of push their way through the turnstiles and inside because there was no room inside. So why go shoulder to shoulder, neck to neck when there was no way to get to a concession stand? And so by making it a part of the inside the park experience, fans came earlier, we were able to do portables out on the street, we were able to uh, cook your famous Fenway Frank right there in front of you on uh, what was then called Yawkey Way. Um, the team set up, you know, a lot of just sort of magical things that would attract kids and give families more of a reason to be at Fenway. And just the sort of spaciousness of it was a, was, was a demonstration to our attitude about renovating Fenway. It wasn't just a true renovation, but also an expansion that would take advantage of the streets surrounding it and try and grow uh, by using the organic footprint that was already there. That's so interesting. And I'm sure kind of doing that, like you said, organic expansion where you're not actually in that case, although there may, may have been physical additions in other areas of the ballpark, you're kind of just extending the geographic line of it. That's probably nice for the team in terms of being able to sell tickets, being able to um, sell more apparel, more um, food and beverage. Is that something that is, comes into consideration when you're building these larger concourses, more room for um, food and drink, and then also kind of sponsorship activation? It does, although I would say that um, they go hand in hand, that if you've created a place where people are comfortable and they want to be and they're having fun, that then they do invest in the food, the beverage, the retail, the other offerings. So I think if you go into it and say, I wanna make more money, we need a place for all this stuff. It's not as successful if you come in the other door and you say, I wanna create a place where people just want to be. And, when you're looking to attract, you know, 30,000 plus fans, 81 nights a year, you better count on not only the rapid fan being there, but also whoever they might have in tow. You know, you want it to be a scene and a place for the casual fan to feel comfortable and to uh, feed off of the energy that's, that's surrounding that. And I think we found at Fenway that there was a charm that we didn't feel could be replicated with something new. And we had, of course, the, you know, the added motivation of um, a, a feeling that we could do this in a series of off seasons. So under Larry Lucchino's direction, we worked with the architects DAIQ, based, who were also based in Boston. And every year for a 10-year period, we mapped out a piece of work that we could do between November and March and tackle that and then reopen the next year so that we never went dark 
and we never had to stop playing baseball at Fenway, which had often been cited as one of the disadvantages to a, a renovation is the fear that you'd have to shut down and play someone at, somewhere else for two to three years. And we felt um, we could prove that theory wrong. Well, you guys did a phenomenal job because I can't imagine a year of no baseball at Fenway and in Boston definitely would aggravate the fans, which kind of leads me to one point. When you're coming in, um, hired by the Red Sox to, to do this job and you have a goal in mind, but these fans have been used to the things being done in a certain way for such a long time. They're used to their traditions and they, they really love what they know. What type of advice do you take from fans? What type of feedback do you guys look to get? Or how do they play into kind of the process of making these major changes, not just at Fenway, but across baseball and sports in general, where the fan base is a very important part of the organization? Well, it's a great question, because I can tell you, you're not the expert. Don't think you're going to go into Fenway Park or Dodger Stadium or any other building that's had generations of fans, many of whom have kept their season tickets in their family through generations. And you're not going to tell them what to do. They'll tell you how it is. And that's really important because I think one of the reasons why baseball fans enjoy uh, the journey across the country looking at other ballparks is that everyone is not only different physically, but the, the customs and the behavior of fans and the uh, things that happen in the ballpark from the uniqueness of the foods to the way the entertainment is done. It's a real reflection of that community in that city. So that's maybe the best part of my job is just listening to fans. And sometimes that's listening with your ears and sometimes it's listening with your eyes. And um, the best times are when you can just go and disappear into the stands and be one of them. Amazing. And I'm sure you've been, other than obviously LA, Baltimore, Atlanta, and Boston, I'm sure you've been to most parks in baseball. What, if we're excluding the ones you've worked on, which park is your favorite? I would say that Pittsburgh and uh, San Francisco are two that are really very special. And they're special because of the way they fit into their city and the way they respond to the city around them. So uh, the urban uh, student, of the, the student of urban centers that I am, I would say those two would be my favorite. 